Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. What an incredible day it's been today. Huge day for markets. Uh, Really uh, very, very strong after the inflation number came out at 3.8%. Good positive number. Um, It's going to be short-lived, though, with all of the administered prices that are coming through that are going to take money out of your pocket, whether it be the VAT increase, the fuel price increases, the impending doom and gloom around municipal rates and the uh, huge increases we're likely to see um, ESCOM requesting just over 30% increases they're looking for in the first round and the two more rounds of increases that they're trying to bully Nursa into uh, forcing upon you before the year is out. Uh, This inflation number is really good. It's been great for markets today but it's not necessarily going to stick with us for long. We'll talk about the Yes campaign. It's facing a big obstacle. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, FDI, uh, critical to save the South African economy. We've got Dr. Adrian Saville uh, chatting to us later on about FDI and the five big things we need to know about it. Plus, the new chief executive of African Bank is our shapeshifter. That's all coming up on tonight's Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So watch manufacturers like the people who drive racing cars. They're like speedsters. They're like people who have got an edge to them and they then sponsor them. There's a South African speedster to become the first South African, as far as I can tell, to become a Tag Heuer ambassador. Which South African speedster, and I may have just thrown you a red herring, has uh, become the first ever South African Tag Heuer ambassador. That's a fast fact question for you this evening. Oh, the, oh double no, don't phone, don't phone, because you won't get through because we're so busy. Three one seven zero two three one five six seven. Seven zero two and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Well, South Africa's accounting industry going through extraordinary introspection and its woes are getting bigger and bigger. I'm really worried about the impact, uh, the cancellation of the Auditor General's contracts with KPMG and Nkonki yesterday is going to have on Nkonki, which is far more dependent on the public sector than KPMG is. But rather than nipping issues in the bud, the industry, which seems quite hamstrung by politeness and rule books, rather than treat it as a sector under siege, the Auditor General, Kimi Makwetu, upping the ante yesterday by firing both Nkonki and KPMG. But did you know that the Archbishop of Cape Town, Thabo Mahoba, is not only the Archbishop of Cape Town, but he's a trained psychologist. He also teaches ethics at the University of Cape Town. I'm not sure if it's at the business school, the Graduate School of Business, or at the main campus, but he does that. Now, he was part of a panel discussion I attended today at the South African Institute for Chartered Accountants. And he was asked today all about the impact of ethics in accounting. And I thought it would be slightly left of field to get the head of the Anglican Church uh, to talk all about ethics, accounting, and what auditors are getting up to in their spare time. The accountants with KPMG and what has happened have really broken our trust because this is a noble profession that a lot of us have put trust in. We put our monies, we think that the 
the financial statements are correct. You can imagine if somebody were to say the church's pension fund over these many years has gone bust because um, somebody was just uh, passing these statements. Meanwhile, mm. something is wrong. So it impacts on human beings. Mm. You also talk about in civil society, trust is the lubricant and the currency of a healthy democracy. And we've seen South African trust levels across media, across business, across politics, across all levels of society deteriorate very substantially. Do you see this as an opportunity for, I don't know, regeneration? I hate the words moral regeneration. We've been there before, yeah. but is it time? I really see it as, a, uh, as an opportunity because, uh, if I may say, I was very humbled by the fact that the profession here is really wrestling with their image. They are saying what can be done. They are not hiding things under the carpet. They are saying we need to really regain that ability uh, to be trustworthy. Uh, that lubricant is gone. Even if in the imagery of an ink in a glass of milk, spoiling the whole milk, they are prepared to really work again. But it will not be enough to say we will work again. They have to demonstrate it in action uh, that uh, they want to take this um, populace in confidence and be trusted. Now, if we can't trust the audit profession, can we trust the companies, the government departments, the state-owned enterprises that they audit? If there is a room for a loophole and those loopholes are seen to be exploited, how do we ever trust again? It's exactly that point that now... If the accounting and, um, and auditing profession cut corners, so the government will cut corners and everyone will cut corners. Yep, that is the, the voice of the Archbishop of Cape Town, Tabo Mahoba, earlier today, talking accounting. I thought that would be interesting. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. It was launched just a couple of weeks ago as this great big uh, motion of hope and optimism in the future. The Yes campaign, the Cyril Ramaphosa endorsed jobs initiative designed to get a million young people into work experience in companies in the next three years. It's a big, it's a difficult and ambitious goal, but it's just been made more difficult. If you saw the Government Gazette of the 29th of March, and I'm assuming you didn't because not too many people read Government Gazettes for fun, but if you did see it on the 29th of March, you would have seen a surprise qualification requirement which has been added into the mix by the DTI. Now, in order to qualify for BEE recognition that giving work experience to young people might provide, companies are also going to have to contribute 2.5% of their payroll to bursaries. Tashma Ismail is the chief executive of the Yes campaign. Was this always part of the plan? It's not something I saw in the original blueprints. Well, you know, in our discussions with the DTI, all we can do is discuss with them what uh, we are planning for yes and and what we would require for yes of course uh, you know there are internal processes at government level which we are not privy to and of course the the writing of the gazette is completely up to the dti and 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 you know their discretion so 
us not knowing uh, is not too much of a surprise because we aren't let into that level, um, uh, you know, of, of access. Um, but but I would say that yes, we were a little surprised. Uh, we had done our forecasts on uh, on uptake and adoption uh, based on the one and a half percent of net profit after tax investment and on the qualification criteria, which was a fifty percent average um, across your 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 three priority elements. Okay, you've just lost me and 99% of people who've been listening to us this evening. Um, you, there was going to be a financial implication. There was an expectation that companies who would agree to take in these young people who would pay them a stipend would make a financial contribution uh, to improve the lives of South Africans more broadly than just the Yes campaign. The number, though, is higher than you'd anticipated. Yes, um, significantly higher. The, um, the Gazette has now required companies to put two and a half percent of payroll uh, into a bursary fund or bursary funds. They can redirect current bursary funds into this, but it is 2.5% of payroll and you have to spend 100% of that to be able to access the BE recognition um, that the the Gazette was offering to YES for the investment in jobs, Mm. which as we say was one and a half percent of NPAT. Do you see this as a, a potential... Um, I don't know, potential deal breaker for many companies? Um, strangely, the word uh, deal breaker was used by by a few companies. If you look at the value of 2.5% of payroll, it's significant. Um, if you look at the skills spend on the uh, scorecard, it's 6% of payroll. That has now been split into two sections, a 2.5% of payroll on the bursary fund and the rest on skills inside of the company. So there, there has been... Um, uh, a huge sort of response. We're receiving emails and calls from, from many companies who are starting to digest this. Um, of course, as you pointed out, many people don't read the Gazette, sure. but as their verification agencies and uh, consultancies are starting to understand the implications, uh, companies are getting back to us to say this will influence it. It's a significant um, add to the yes investment does this then suggest that this is an initiative with all the fanfare and all the ambition and all the excitement that could in fact get become stillborn I, i'm not going to jinx it by saying that i, I'm, I am going to encourage <laughs> yes it, it worries us uh, it does worry us so that's a possibility there is a 60-day comments process. The DTI encourages the public, encourages business uh, to feedback. Uh, This impacts large companies. It's not something that's going to impact uh, uh, smaller companies. Uh, However, uh, we needed the funds from the large companies to kickstart this with a with a nice big investment for the first. We've got a spreadsheet of jobs. I won't say the number, but it's significant. And of course, you know, we just have to keep all of this on hold until the DTI's process, Gazette process of comments from the public can be received. They will process these comments and make decisions uh, on the on the draft Gazette. So. Um, you know, if, if companies do send comments to the DTI on their views and challenges, uh, which they may have with this, there may be companies that are that are fine with it. But if you do, we encourage you, you know, the DTI 
have the comments process to be able to listen to the public. And we should make use of that forum. Okay, Tashmir as well, she's concerned that this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back, the goodwill of large corporations to participate in the Yes campaign. The cost of doing the, uh, of participating is effectively doubled as a result of this proposal in the Government Gazette, the DTI, putting the 2.5% of payroll into the cost of doing business. It's a big additional cost, and that is concerning. 702, The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011. Double eight three oh seven oh two. Well, back to the accounting story we were talking about earlier, and uh, perhaps it's time for SICA, the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants, to have some regulatory authority over its members, maybe a more formal structure that gives it greater powers against the crooks that are in its ranks. It's another idea that's being suggested, in addition to one from the Independent Regulatory Board for Auditors, that uh, they say we should see a split in the structure and functioning of audit and advisory firms. The same firm, they say, should not be allowed to do both. Mark Stewart, Chief Executive at accounting firm BDO South Africa. You don't like that proposal very much. Why not, Mark Stewart? Bruce, uh, I think it's something that uh, we have expected for some time, but I think when an announcement of the magnitude of this to our profession is made, there should be more meat to the bone. Uh, I, I think that this is a significant event in the life of our profession, and I would have expected uh, the regulator to perhaps have added more detail to what the initial announcement was. I mean, are you suggesting that the two can live side by side without conflict? Perhaps that conflict needs to be more carefully managed. So far, it doesn't seem to be working particularly well, though. Bruce, I think the comment you make is absolutely right. Um, Of course, we've lived with the the New Companies Act for some time now, and the Section 90, which is particularly important to the type of work that auditors can do outside of the audit work, and uh, my, my view is that we have legislation which um, we are able to, to live by. Is it being policed correctly by the regulator? And of course, I imagine the, your viewers might say, your listeners might say, uh, well, should the audit firms not be regulating themselves? And we go to great lengths to do this. Um, regulation is a priority for, for all the firms. And the quality of the service that we render to the public is of course paramount, but there will always be rotten eggs. And I think that's the case that we're faced with now, is that uh, we've had several incidents in the last couple of weeks which caused the public to doubt, and uh, rightly so. But, but surely in order to restore confidence, there's going to have to be a big stick approach by some form of officialdom, as much as you might resent it and want to fight back and push back against it, it's hardly surprising that um, faith and public faith in the the audit industry in South Africa is possibly at an all-time low. I'd agree with you that it's at an all-time low, and I think all the participants have to really uh, put their, their hearts and minds into changing that perception that the public has. Uh, I just want to be clear that we, we don't suggest that there shouldn't be a big stick. Uh, I, I think that it's fairly common that uh, the penalties that are imposed on firms are not necessarily severe enough to change the conduct that we are currently seeing. Mark Stewart, thank you. Chief Executive at accounting firm BDO South Africa. We need more stringent oversight. We need higher penalties, um, says Mark Stewart. Yeah, interesting points. Chief Executive at BDO South Africa. Which speedster, this is our fast fact question for you this evening, which speedster has become the first South African to be a TAG Hoyer ambassador? And I'm afraid none of you have got it yet. 
Give us a go. 31702-31567. The Money Show. The Markets. Yeah, markets had a great day today. Really, really strong performance on the JSE, fueled, I suspect, by an inflation number that was much better than expected, 3.8%. It's hard to to believe I know that that's the official inflation rate, but 3.8%. It won't last long, though. The VAT increase, the increases in the fuel levy, the spike in oil prices, the weakening in the currency, although today was better. The, uh, the sharp first quarter recovery all point to higher inflation as the year evolves. Chris Stewart at Investec Asset Management, do you expect the downward would spike in inflation to be short-lived as I do? Yeah, Bruce, don't throw cold water on the party. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, it's been six hours. The news is six hours old. We can pour cold water on it now. Yeah, I mean, all, all of your points are valid. Uh, we do have VAT increases. We've got fuel levy increases and a variety of factors that are going to come through. But nonetheless, it does appear as though the uh, non-administered components of inflation, if you like, the core parts of inflation, are behaving even better than expected. Food price inflation a little bit better this month. Uh, and despite the fact that the rand is a little bit weaker now than the stronger levels we'd become accustomed to, sub-11, it's still pretty strong relative to the prevailing rates of all of last year. And as a result of that, we continue to have deflation uh, in a number of categories. So, yes, inflation will tick up. Will it tick up to any level that is of concern over the balance of this year? Well, you know, if the macro story can remain on track domestically, if the RAND doesn't weaken materially, and it's not our expectation necessarily that that will happen, uh, you know, I don't think inflation is looking like it's too much of a problem. Okay, well, good news on that front. 3.8%. We'll take it, celebrate it, and hopefully the Reserve Bank gets to hear about it through the grapevine. Um, now, uh, MassMart's trading update. Uh, the share price was down a fraction on the day. How's MassMart holding up in what was a tough year last year? Yeah, a little bit disappointing. This is just the trading update for the first three uh, months of this year or the first 12 uh, trading weeks of calendar 2018. And it is still pretty tough. I guess a lot of uh, the expectation of an improved domestic consumer environment is still to come. Uh, probably unrealistic to expect that all of a sudden the environment is going to improve in the first quarter of this year purely because of an improvement in the outlook uh, and some of the political events of December of last year. So still early days, and they're talking a reasonably positive story prospectively, but nothing in the numbers so far this year uh, to draw too much comfort from. They're talking about uh, sales being approximately flat both domestically and within their franchise outside of South Africa uh, with uh, on a like-for-like uh, basis, in other words, allowing for some sort of expansion. In fact, uh, sales negative, but they've got deflation uh, running through their product basket in total. So we get back to somewhere around flat physical uh, volumes of sales over the period, which is a little disappointing, and you saw that reflected in the share price today. Yeah. Uh, we saw the founder of MassMart, uh, until today, chief executive of Imperial, Mark Lamberti, resign. Johan van Sale has quit Steinhoff, and then the chief executive of Robosis Property Fund, uh, its uh, chief executive, Andile Mazwai, just seven months into the job, he quit today as well. The interim results are being postponed. The share price there falling sharply. I've never seen three senior people on uh, in companies resign on one day, all looking interesting. Yeah, I mean, all for, for very different reasons, clearly. Um, Mark Lamberti's uh, resignation at, at the imperial level probably catching the market a little bit by surprise. But if you look at uh, what's going on there in terms of succession planning, you've got Osman Arby, Arby 
taking over. He has been heading up uh, MOTUS, which is the motor division of Imperial. We all know that Imperial will be splitting their operations uh, hopefully sort of towards the middle of this year. The board has indicated that there will be no change in strategy post Mr. Lamberti's departure. Um, Osman Arby will take over as group CEO, and once the group splits back up into its logistics and motor operations, he will go back to his existing role as motor CEO. Uh, so not a huge amount of disruption as a result of uh, Mark Lamberti's decision there today and the share price taking it in their stride. Um, there, and then Hammerson, it uh, bailed on Intu. Uh, and that came a week after Clapier bailed on it. And Intu, which is the shopping centre owner in the UK, part of the old Liberty International, uh, fell quite sharply on the day. Yeah, somewhat, uh, somewhat confusing. Uh, I, I think yeah, Hammerson was up two and a half percent, and 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 um, Intu down four percent or something. I guess the the bid premium uh, now disappearing, given that Hammerson have said that they are no longer as enthusiastic on a transaction until very realistic, uh, very recently. I beg your pardon. They were very enthusiastic on, uh, and that's because the environment has changed in the last few weeks in the UK, and the market is no longer valuing their prospects and their opportunities as it should have. It all read a little bit curiously to me, Bruce. Um, yeah, no, very odd, uh, very odd announcements. Uh, MediClinics trading update. It seemed like somebody got wind of it yesterday because yesterday the hospital groups um, were flying and today they flew even higher. Yeah, mixed bag from MediClinic, but I guess where it counts, the market's seeing positives in it. Uh, if you split the group into three main operating geographies, you've got the Middle East, you've got Switzerland, and you've got South Africa. And in order, I think the Middle East a little bit better than the market was anticipating. Uh, some of their expansion coming online a little bit faster. Uh, and their existing operations doing a little bit better. I guess the the fact that the new businesses will be coming on faster means the margin compression as a result of bringing new businesses to bear will in fact come through a little bit faster than anticipated, which might be negative for 2019's earnings, but much more positive uh, into 2020. So that was well received. The South African business, by and large, fairly much in line with expectations, a better implied second half than first half. And you know, if we want to be kind, maybe a percent or so ahead of market expectations in terms of uh, revenue from the South African business. So that did uh, reasonably well. Uh, and the disappointment in the results that the market seemed to overlook, given the positive outlook in the other two divisions, was the Swiss business. Uh, it looks as though there's going to be an impairment of goodwill and intangibles of somewhere between yeah, three yeah. and 600 million rand. Uh, and I seem to recall they've only got six or seven hundred million rands worth of intangibles on balance sheet as it relates to the Hearst and business. So almost all of the goodwill being written off in that business wow. by the look of it and being blamed largely on the regulatory environment in Switzerland and the fact that from a regulatory perspective, the government is cracking down on pricing, which is going to be margin negative for their business there. Chris Stewart from Investec Asset Management. Thank you very much indeed. Fast fact answer in a couple of minutes' time. Now you're beginning to wake up to it. You're beginning to think a bit more broadly, and you're beginning to get a little bit closer to it. A couple of you have even got the fast fact right today. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. So which speedster becomes the first South African to be a Tag Heuer ambassador? Um, you started off going literally on speedster. You got uh, Assad and Sadiq went Brad Binder. He's the motorbike champion, isn't he? I think he is. Um, and then you got a bit closer with Akane Simbane. 
you got to be closer with Custa Semenya. Is that the fast fact? Asked Chris from Four Ways. I would say Kiso Rabada is a legitimate speedster. Try and tell him to his face that he's not as he's thundering down the pitch at you about to release at what? I don't know. what. what how fast does he bowl? 140. 140. <laughs> I don't have a car that goes that fast. Kahizo Robada. Um, yeah, he is the first of uh, the first South African, as far as I can tell, to join the likes of Ayrton Senna, Steve McQueen, Muhammad Ali, who've all been ambassadors for this brand. And uh, Robada, long list of sports stars and personalities, promoting the brand, a great uh, tribute to uh, to uh, Kahizo Robada for the sporting prowess which he's exhibited. And, of course, he's going to be a great brand ambassador for Tag Heuer. Africa Connected, your link to Africa's markets. Brought to you by Standard Bank. Moving forward, hashtag Africa Connected. Africa Connected with Standard Bank gives you trusted insights into the endless potential of Africa's markets. So we've sent the Pan-African broadcaster Lika Sumba to look at how business is done across the continent. And this month she's in Côte d'Ivoire. We're following her journey on africanconnected.co.za and social media hashtag Africa Connected. Right now, though, let's hear what Lika Sumba has been up to, the host of Africa Connected and Africa State of Mind. Uh, Lika Sumba, it looks like it's food. It looks like it's fun. It looks like you're having the best jaw of your life. But tell me about South Africans doing business in Cote d'Ivoire. They're two guys from East London selling deep-fried chicken to Ivorians. Yes. So we, we, go, we managed to speak with Grant, who is the general manager of Baobab, and they basically have the, fra- they have the franchise for KFC in Cote d'Ivoire. It was such a little conversation. The story is pretty much they own a few of the franchises in, in East London and they were looking to expand in, in the rest of the continent. They came here last year in February, fell in love with Kivu, literally like like how I explained it, when they arrived they thought there was something special about this country and now um, within I think next week Monday they'll be having the launch of uh, the first KFC in Cote d'Ivoire and Abidjan and they feel like it's the most opportune time to do business in Cote d'Ivoire and it's one of the most amazing countries in the continent as well so they just arrived fell in love with it and thought this might be a great place to start and here they are. Uh, and I mean have they had an easy run of it have they been able uh, to open up the business uh, easily have there been obstacles put in their way? Well, they, they basically said that one of the best ways to go about, you know, starting a business um, in Cote d'Ivoire is to have local partners. So they've partnered with Vivo Energy um, as their partner, um, which worked out really well for them. Also, um, one of the things that they did mention when I asked Graham, you know, what is it, like what makes it easy to work here versus other African countries, he said exactly the road system is, is great. It's really awesome. The energy system and the 24-hour power really plays a huge role, as well as um, the water system just work. He says that a South African can work easily in Cote d'Ivoire because the systems actually work. The biggest challenge might be the language factor, but because Ivorians are very warm and welcoming and they, they, they're really hungry um, to bring people into their country, that's not like a, it's not like a huge challenge because people will help you through. But he says that it's quite easy for a South African to come and do business in Cote d'Ivoire because the and everything just works. And then tell me about a guy called Chris Ndalo, um, who you say is the quintessentially African businessman. 
So, Bruce, as you know, I'm from Uganda originally. So as we were setting up for the interview, he started talking about how prior to coming to Cote d'Ivoire, he was based in Uganda. And we actually started speaking Uganda together. I have that on record. <laughs> I was quite shocked. And he's, he's a South African. <laughs> yeah, he's a South African. He first started in in South Africa. And he basically used to travel around the continent um, for three, you know, to different um, parts of the continent three days at a go, you know, and then he decided he really wanted to venture out into um, into the rest of the continent and he really felt that uh, the African Renaissance should have been a policy more than, a, than than an idea. So he was based in Uganda for about six years. He's only just got into Cote d'Ivoire and he really has an understanding with regards to how the, the, the markets work and also how it is that the motoring industry works in East Africa versus West Africa versus Southern Africa. And I really loved what he said. He said that one of the things that the great shame is that Cote d'Ivoire has been ready for almost 10 years and South Africa has really not taken advantage of such a of such an amazing country to invest in. So he really is he loves it here. He brought his family here. He speaks French, Luganda, Zulu. I was standing there thinking, okay, this is I felt like I had to up my my languages. But I was I was quite impressed. He seemed like he could fit into anywhere in the continent. And and I think his story is great because, you know, as South Africans, you know, one of the important things is to understand that once you get to travel within the continent, there are so many opportunities and, and it really is the prime time to kind of invest in, in Africa. Lee Kasumba having a blast, the host of Africa Connected and, of course, Africa State of Mind. Lee Kasumba on the line to us from Cote d'Ivoire. For more on Lee's travels, go to africaconnected.co.za. Standard Bank calls Africa home and drives her growth, combining their strong African presence with global capabilities. Standard Bank supports businesses that need a banking partner who knows Africa. Standard Bank has partnered with us on The Money Show, Cape Talk and 702 on Africa Connected to give you in-depth, first-hand insights into Africa's diverse markets and the innovative solutions that come from Africa. Standard Bank moving forward. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. On the next Money Show, we've got the chief executives of Clicks and Pick and Pay to take us through their company's financial results. Bonang Mohale, chief executive at Business Leadership South Africa, to talk about economic priorities for the country. And the finance minister, Ntlanta Nene, in Washington for the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank Group. He joins us live from there too. Another busy Money Show coming up. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Mike Brown, the chief executive of Nedbank, is in studio with us this evening. He's been telling U.S. investors not only about Nedbank and his Africa growth strategy, but also, I guess, some of the trials and opportunities that South Africa represents. And I saw you the last time we spoke about results, and South Africa is a very different place in a very short period of time, Mike Brown. Yeah, good evening. It, it is remarkable uh, quite how much has changed in our country since December. And, you know, sometimes when we sit inside the country, we don't notice it as much as people who sit outside the country. So the reception that, that we had on our international roadshows was dramatically different to those at the back end of last year. And whenever an international investor is looking at investing in a business like Nedbank, Generally, they start with a country lens, what's going on in your country. That's a discussion around politics and macro. You then drop down into an industry lens and then your business. 
Uh, and so let's go through it in terms of uh, let's go let's work backwards. Nedbank and um, the performance of Nedbank in the last ten years has been better and better and better, and it's outperformed um, rivals in many cases. Share price growth has outperformed many rivals too. Um, sector good, solid, well regulated, fought back hard against attempts at capture last year. Tell me about the country lens that they're that they're more interested in. You sound like talking to a Nedbank investor. <laughs> well. No, I think, uh, you know, essentially, I think what what the international in investors recognize is that, you know, despite South Africa having gone through an incredibly difficult period, what's transpired in the last few months is actually evidence of the institutional strength in our country to to turn things around. And what what you see playing out is that financial markets really discount that early on. Financial markets pay up front for what they expect to happen in the future. And the very strong rally that we've seen in financial markets in the last back end of last year and early this year is evidence of that. As we've seen, you know, SA Inc. stock prices go up, bond yields fall, the rand strengthen. We've seen what last year was 100 billion rand of foreign outflows turn into 50, sorry, 100 billion rand of foreign outflows turn into 50 billion of inflows in the first three months of this year. So you've had a very good performance of financial markets discounting what they expect, expect to happen in the real economy. Sure. And I guess what investors are really trying to do is join the dots between what's going on in financial markets and when does that really start translating into higher levels of loan growth, higher levels of customer transactional activity, and therefore higher levels of revenue in the banking sector. We've got Sir Ramaphosa and the team uh, in the UK, the Commonwealth uh, heads of government meetings. Um, he's given uh, a big job um, to some of your former colleagues in the banking sector and to senior government officials to create this team of investment ambassadors to get $100 billion for South Africa in the next five years. It's a big ask. Are they going to get close, do you think? You know, I think we, we know that, that what we have now is an environment where we are capable of dealing with some of the very large challenges facing our country, be that state-owned enterprises, be it dealing with, with state capture, be it the mining charter. Uh, you know, these are very big challenges in front of us that we still have to deal with. Land reform would go into that category. Mm. But very definitely, we have the ability to deal with those. And if we are seen to be dealing with those structural challenges, I have no doubt we'll be able to attract that level of investment. But I like the way you don't oversell it. We are capable of dealing with is much, much, more, much more honest than saying we are dealing with. And because some of these things are so big and so complex and so fraught by history and by dispossession and by the complexity of the relationships that South Africans have with each other, that this isn't a, a one-year, 12-month whatever it might be fixed it's going to take an awfully long time exactly right and i think the example we'd use with international investors would be eskom you know clearly it is a very very important first step to resu to have a capable board in place led by a capable capable chairman and and that's the a foundation that's needed for anything but what's much harder to do is to fix the business model of Eskom, to sure. fix the capital structure of Eskom, and all of that's going to take a significantly longer time. Now, you are a chartered accountant, CASA. It's a, it's, a, 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 it's a very respected worldwide. The CASA title has been very well respected. Are you grumpy with the CA industry in South Africa right now, like so many other CAs seem to be with this just incident after incident, predominantly around KPMG, but a couple of the other audit companies also have fallen foul? Yeah, for sure, I'm, for sure I'm grumpy and I think everybody has the, the right to be grumpy because people looked to auditors as that independent you know, view on the, on the appropriateness of sets of numbers and there are now numerous 
uh, incidents where that independent view has been inappropriately given. So I do think that the audit profession in general needs to have a very hard look at itself mm. uh, in terms of the value proposition that it's selling to society and investors. Yesterday, the time we had Kimi Makweto, the Auditor General of South Africa, saying that he's fired KPMG. He used nicer words than that, but it's the same thing. KPMG and Nkongi as auditors to the public sector where audit, uh, where audit certainty is required. He's saying, we don't trust you. We can't have you doing those audits. Um, KPMG are your auditors, yet you are giving them another pass, even after the SARS debacle and now more recently um, around the most recent revelations around VBS Mutual Bank. They are your auditors. Aren't you worried that you might be stained with the same, um, with, with the same issues? So I think a couple of things here. Um, certainly in respect of, of, of the big banks in South Africa, we all have joint auditors. So Nedbank is audited by both KPMG and Deloitte. Okay. Um, in Nedbank's particular circumstances at the moment, our parent company is also, Old Mutual is also audited by KPMG. We have to have that link. And Old Mutual is in the process mm. of managed separation, which is a relisting and homecoming here to South Africa. So for them to change auditors in the middle of that process is, is absolutely impossible without having significant delays. Then, you know, without getting too, too technical, um, what the Reserve Bank and Urba have not yet worked out is what does mandatory audit firm rotation look like when you have two sets of auditors? Yeah. Because you could get quite dizzy as you rotate well, these well, you, auditors from You simply from rotate time to from time. two to two to two back to the old two again, and that doesn't well, make sense at all. So, so that gets pretty complicated. Um, and then, you know, another lens that I'll, that I'll add to it is there's a section in the Companies Act, Section 90, which deals with how long somebody who wants to be your auditor has to cool off from doing consultancy services and the practical implications right now that's five years so if you want to change your auditors in the short term it's quite difficult because there's a very high chance that the obvious candidates yeah. that you could move to are disqualified in terms of <laughs> section 90. i see the complexity of it it is i get the sense though that a lot of people would like to change auditors though there, there is this the smell around kpmg just doesn't want to go away do you feel uncomfortable or are you are you comfortable with the people who are doing your audits that you're in safe hands well, so, so we've had the particular challenge that our, our, the, the lead auditor on our audit is the auditor who's been suspended oh. for the VB, VBS audit. Yeah. And we're in the process of replacing that person and we're comfortable with who that person's going to be replaced with. We've had the work that they've done at Nedbank reviewed by both KPMG International okay. and by Deloitte as their fellow auditors. So we're very comfortable with the work that's being done but clearly uncomfortable with the situation and continue to put a lot of pressure on KPMG to fix themselves. Because I don't think it is in South Africa's best interests to only have three large audit firms. No. There we go. Mike Brown, the Chief Executive at Nedbank. A, a wide-ranging, interesting discussion. Thanks very much for coming in this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, Dr. Adrian Saville is caught up in that horrible um, block a, a blocked M1 North, that shooting um, on the M1 North this evening, and we've been hearing about it in traffic reports. So Dr. Adrian Saville on the phone in just a little while. We'll talk to him about why it is so important that South Africa does get foreign direct investment. And then outside uh, our studio this evening, I met her sister this morning, actually. Um, the Basani Maluleke, Chief Executive at African Bank. Her sister's the Deputy Auditor General. 
Her dad was a judge of the high court. They are an underachieving family. But hey, we'll talk to her anyway. Um, <laughs> yes, she's laughing. Good, good. She hasn't walked out yet. Let's see if we can try harder. But I'm looking forward to catching up with her, finding out what's going on at African Bank this evening. The Money Show. Business Unusual. Cliff DeWitt, Cliff DeWitt, Cliff DeWitt. Divit. Divit. Close to the microphone, Cliff. Um, good many things, not talking into microphones, as it turns out, but uh, nice to have you in studio this evening. The Chief Technical Officer, the co-founder at Dexterity Digital, with uh, our look into Business Unusual this evening. Business Unusual, of course, is our regular feature with Colin Cullis. Uh, Colin Cullis is away on an extended holiday, but we've got Cliff DeWitt in studio with us this evening. Digital privacy, many of us, and I put my hand up here, are thinking, what is the big deal? anyway about this digital privacy nonsense. People are overreacting. People are getting far too hit up about a couple of personal details on the internet and apparently being manipulated by Russians to vote for Donald Trump. It didn't affect me. I don't care. Why should we care? Great question, Bruce. Hi, good evening, everybody. Yeah, you know, I, I think we're moving into this era where uh, we, I guess the colloquial term is data is becoming the new oil. Um, many of us to, to your point, to giving away our data probably without even thinking about it. We're all too happy to take free services. We're all too happy to use these wonderful services that give us insight and information and allow us to share our personal information. And we don't think too much of it when we do that. But the, I guess the more sinister side of this is that the back end, many of these institutions are taking this data, building profiles about you to understand you, to understand your habits, to understand where you go, what you do, how you do it. And they're using very clever algorithms now to be able to target you with specific advertising, to give you information that may be appealing to you. And they're doing this in very, very clever ways. They uh, use Pause there for a second, okay? You said Waze, which got me thinking. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, favorite traffic app, Waze. And so if you get stuck in a traffic jam and you're not hemmed in on both sides by barriers, if you're not on the M1 North this evening, but you're heading towards it and you want a clever way to get there, you simply tap in an address on, on a Waze or on a Google Maps, yep. um, and it takes you to your destination yep. better. It doesn't cost you a cent more than the data you consume. Waze give you that. They are such nice people. Correct. Um, and what's nice about it is everybody else, who's on ways as well is telling you where there's a pothole or they're telling you where yes. there's an obstacle or where there may be a problem um, and ways is navigating you through those that's a good and great service surely it is a good and great service but you can see how they start monetizing so i'm sure if you've noticed when you use ways and you stop at a traffic light all of a sudden you're getting a pop-up that says i don't you... look i don't look at my phone uh, at traffic lights so well, well I, I have it i have it in a nice stand next okay. to me it's not in my <laughs> but um, they're, they're now monetizing their data. So they're popping up ads in front of you when they see that you're at stationary position. And they say, wouldn't you like to, if you're hungry, wouldn't you like to pull in at the KFC? It's only 1.2 Ks down the road. And they're able to do that because you're giving them the data of where you physically are. But that is an, that's not only an additional service to the, the local KFC, but I may be peckish and may be looking for a KFC. And that, again, is a service or Ab not. Absolutely. And you're getting to the point that I'm actually trying to make. In essence, all of this, I believe, is good, right? We're, we're giving away some data. We're receiving good services on the back of that data. And the algorithms and the machine learning capabilities that we're building in technology these days, ultimately, in most cases, is good. It's helping us make better decisions. It's helping us making better, better decisions in, in farming, in agriculture. And in some ways, it's even helping us uh, getting closer to curing cancer. 
But the point is we should also understand what data we're giving away and how we're giving that away because sometimes you are giving away data that you probably don't want to give away. Your address sometimes maybe. Maybe you don't want to and tell... And suddenly you're not. I was listening to a fabulous podcast the other day um, and they were talking about this uh, criminal who lived in Pimlico in the United Kingdom in the Victorian era. Right. And he was a really high-flying criminal. He made lots of money. Nobody quite knew what he did, but he would invite members of high society around around to his home for parties. And eventually people cottoned on that, you know, inevitably halfway through the party, their host would disappear. They would end up going home and would find that they'd been robbed. Um, and, and this was before big data. This was just a guy who sort of preempted big data. The point is um, that if you if, if, if somebody can tell when you are and are not at home, right. um, when your device is no longer at home and it's usually attached to you, right. well, then your home is vulnerable Correct. or whatever the case might be. Correct. And I think the more the more interesting side of this, that's a very phys- good physical representation. But if, if we know a lot about you, we know a lot about how you think, coming back to your USA election analogy, could we not start suggesting things using very clever algorithms to change the way you think? And that's the more sinister side of giving away your information. Uh, I mean, I get subliminal messaging, I get all of that sort of stuff, but doesn't it imply that we're all a bit gullible and stupid if that is the case? In some ways, um, I think there's good examples of it. Yes, I think people will. People are still free thinking, and I think uh, we're probably better than the machines right now. But I think some of the recent uh, the sort of stuff that we've learned, for instance, what Cambridge Analytica did in the US and on what Facebook has now kind of released as information on some of the some of the other elections that they've had, probably show that um, these platforms can swing popular opinion if the right message is placed in front of the right people at the right time. And they're able to do that because people are giving away that personal information. And when it comes to threats to democracy and all of that sort of stuff, I'm very happy in my own life to think that I don't get manipulated. I probably get manipulated all the time. Right. And I just said that because Siri told me to say it. Um, and uh, <laughs> But when you've got a great populace of people who are malleable yes. um, to ideas, who may be feeling disgruntled about the fact that middle America is seeing retail outlets closing, that life is tough, yes. um, all of that sort of stuff, suddenly you can target those messages at them and you can pick a side in an election and unlike the old days of newspapers saying we are now overtly republican or we are overtly democrat or we are overtly anc or or da or whatever it might be it's a subterfuge that you are are unaware of that you're participating in correct Mm. So that is the big concern. And, and companies are, and it's inevitable, companies are in, investing billions in artificial intelligence. And that artificial intelligence yes. is the thing that scares the likes of the Elon Musks of the world and possibly even Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, and I, and I think so. So coming back to the analogy and why, I guess, this, 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 the topic, right? It, all of this is predicated on data. So if we have data, all of these machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence needs data to make decisions. Effectively, the, in, in a nutshell, how this stuff is working is we're collecting large amounts of data and we are taking algorithms and we're pointing at that data and we're asking the algorithm to learn. We're sort of moving away in computing from the terms, the, the years where people would write all the logic. Now we are taking something that has a learning capability, showing it the data and said, go and find patterns in this data. We're not always sure how it does it. But we know that... We don't know how it does it. It's a very interesting statement. Before now, 
all programmable logic was written by humans and people knew what it was doing. And you could you could forecast the, the, the computer program will get to point A, then we'll go to B, it will skip D and E, but get to F. Correct. And now the computer program is deciding what letters of the alphabet is going to in its own time. Correct. <laughs> and, and that is the scary point yeah. of where we're moving to. And this is why some of the big guys are scared about this, because we can't actually predict what the algorithms are going to do. We can give it a problem to solve, we give it data to solve that problem, we don't know how it solves the problem. Now, in the, in the big case, in the positive case, this is all good. It's gonna, like I said, it's gonna help us make better decisions, we're gonna make better credit decisions, our risk is gonna go down because ultimately machines are much better at reasoning over large data sets than humans. It's just a fact. They can see patterns in data that we can't see. But we should always be aware of the, what we're giving away in our personal information and understand what's actually happening in the background because, they, like we said, they could be the more sinister side of this. This, this does sound a bit like a bad James Bond script. <laughs> no, look, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I guess I, I wanted to bring up the topic so that people are aware of what is happening out there. But ultimately, I honestly think this is a good thing. This is going to help us as a society be better. But do but it, there does need to be some level of regulation. There does seem to be some form of control. But the Internet, by its very design, works against that. Um, the fact is you can sit in a basement in... I don't want to pick on Romanians because yes. I'm sure they're lovely people in Romania. But you could be sitting in your underpants in a basement in, in Romania and affecting the outcome of an American election uh, in your underpants yeah. um, or less. Yeah. And that's kind of freaky. But And you can make as many rules as you like um, in the so-called free world that the rest of the world don't necessarily play with. So, and you might have Vladimir Putin agreeing with the rules and ignoring them. Great. And we have very good examples of this happening right now on the Internet. And I think it's going to be, it's going to probably be a, a game of cat and mouse for a very long time between regulation and what data can and can't be used for. And if you look at what the EU is doing with GDPR, the regulation rule, where they asking companies to be able to specify what they're doing with your personal information, you have the right to delete it. And they're very, very hefty fines for companies that don't comply. But of course, that is to countries in the European Union. And we have pretty good protection in terms of Poppy in South Africa, for instance. But you are right. I mean, there's not every country shares that philosophy. And the internet is becoming a global place. I mean, there, there is an analogy now that, that you know, artificial intelligence is going to become to, to machines the same way internet was to the connectivity. It's just going to become a thing. It's going to become a platform that is probably resident in all banking systems, in all financial systems, in all decision systems going forward. So whether we like it or not, this is going to be part of our future. And we should recognize it and understand what it's doing. Well, recognize it, understand how it's going to do, and learn to cope with it. Um, and the bits we don't like, we've got to build some barriers around ourselves. I mean, Correct. Yeah, simple things like password protections and all of that sort of stuff. Because suddenly, what stops an algorithm from figuring out your password and delving into your bank account and that sort of stuff? And the people who are creating them are doing it today. I mean, just, just, just now, there was, a, there was a report in the U.S. about... Uh, uh, another data breach aligned to Facebook, but where they were scraping millions of people's personal records and incorporating them across Facebook, LinkedIn to build three-dimensional profiles of people so that they could target them for various different things. Freaky. Cliff Tavit, thank you very much. Chief Technical Officer, the co-founder at Dexterity Digital, making you, putting you off for your dinner this evening, frankly. In a moment, Dr. Adrian Saville, catch up with him. The big five reasons is why South Africa needs $100 billion worth of investment over the next five years. That is the number that uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of the country, has set to his team, which he has assembled and sent them out, the investment ambassadors, uh, against um, some quite tough odds. But we're going to talk about the principle of why foreign direct investment is absolutely critical to save the South African economy. 
The Money Show. The Big Five. The Big Five brought to you by Worksman's Attorneys, your legal specialist for success for the last century, keeping you close for 100 years. Visit worksmans.com. Welcome to The Money Show this evening, if you've just joined us. Uh, the Big Five reasons why South Africa needs foreign investment, and we've got Team South Africa scouring the globe for $100 billion over the next five years of foreign investment. Professor Adrian Saville, professor at Gibbs, he runs his own investment company too, and that is called Canon Asset Managers. Um, the Invest SA announcements this week, really big, really bold, really ambitious, Adrian Saville. Are they at all achievable and realistic? <laughs> they, they're probably both, Bruce, uh, achievable and realistic. Um, the evidence from uh, uh, other emerging uh, economies is that if you put the right structures in place, which are you know, hard structures like the rule of law, uh, um, uh, agreements, policies, and you put the soft structures in place, uh, you know, the capacity, uh, the mindset, the capability to host uh, investment, uh, then it is uh, well within uh, a possibility and even probability that South Africa could attract that type of capital flow. Now, what we don't do in South Africa nearly enough is generate sufficient capital in our own economy to to fund this thing called yep. the investment rate. Now, our investment rate, I think, is what uh, below twenty percent, and Sir Ramaphosa wants it over thirty yeah. percent. What? Why is this investment rate critical? Well, you know, the investment rate—you can essentially think of it as the country's balance sheet—and um, that investment takes the shape of warehouses, factories, hospitals, highways. You know, all of the productive capacity, uh, fiber optic cable, everything that contributes to the uh, production engine of the of the economy. Uh, and if you scan uh, the world of emerging and developing markets, the the experience over many decades is that you probably need an investment rate of about 30% of GDP. 30% of the economy needs to be directed towards investment spending. And, uh, you know, we get that evidence from India, Indonesia, Chile, China, uh, around the globe. When we look at South Africa's 10-year record, that number sits down at exactly the figure you quoted at about 18%, which means we are really in the industry of just replacing uh, existing balance sheet rather than building new balance sheet. So there's a big gap between what we have and what is needed. And that gap, uh, Ramaphosa's argument, is uh, needs to be filled or can be filled most uh, quickly, obviously, by foreign capital. Now, but there's a difference between foreign capital that comes to build a factory, um, dig a hole in the ground and start a mine, than the money that comes into the bond market or the money that comes into the equity mm. market as FPI. What is FPI versus FDI? So FPI, when it comes in, uh, it's wonderful. This uh, FPI refers to foreign portfolio investment. Ah, okay. Um, it's uh, sometimes rudely referred to as hot money <laughs> because it can leave as quickly as it comes. It can leave really at the press of a trader's button. And um, uh, South Africa has been very successful uh, over the years in attracting foreign portfolio investment because of our sophisticated deep developed capital markets. We have a fantastic stock exchange, uh, sophisticated, well-regulated bond markets, derivative markets, and so on. So we're in a very obvious place for foreign portfolio investment that's looking for an emerging market to find a home. But what foreign portfolio investment doesn't represent is bricks and mortar, which is the stuff that 
really builds an economy. Uh, that's the stuff that translates into jobs, output, exports. And then we've got a big fiscal deficit. We've got a problem. We don't have enough money to... We, we're living beyond our means as a country. Let's put it that way. Um, and, the, yeah. and this foreign direct investment contributes to uh, help sa- helping save us uh, from ourselves. Well, you know, we need to be very careful in saying uh, it, it certainly will. There's uh, a, a, a many ways in which FDI can contribute to closing the fiscal gap. Uh, obviously by creating jobs, and that turns into pay-as-you-earn, uh, by building new consumers, that translates into value-added tax, and uh, taxes that will be gathered from companies that uh, establish themselves in South Africa on the back of that FDI would then become corporate uh, taxpayers. So there's many ways in which uh, FDI can potentially contribute to closing the fiscal gap, and certainly far more ways than uh, foreign portfolio investment ever will. And if we can get uh, exports up as well, uh, our mm. the country's balance sheet improves. I mean, we, we get our current account yeah. sorted out and it gives us stability in the currency market as well. So when you look at the, um, the success of uh, countries like Chile and Costa Rica, uh, they've been uh, very effective in attracting not just foreign direct investment, but foreign direct investment that is outward looking, um, which means they uh, build a domestic production base that produces for international markets. And that translates into uh, export earnings. And as you point out, then the foreign revenue stabilizes the currency market. It fills the uh, current account or the trade deficit. Uh, and it helps the country build uh, foreign exchange reserve coffers if all goes according to plan. We we don't beggars can't be choosers, and I, I don't want to suggest that South Africa is a begging nation, but we certainly are not uh, at our fi- at our, our at our best uh, at our best levels of fitness as a uh, financial fitness as a country. We can't be choosers over the sort of capital that comes our way, but the type of capital is absolutely critical in determining whether we get a sustainable economic turnaround or we go from boom to bust in in regular cycles. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The, um, the evidence from uh, uh, international um, experience is that every 1% of uh, foreign capital that comes in uh, adds about 0.2% to economic growth. So if you take uh, Sora Ramaphosa's $100 billion, um, that would translate into over five years about 1% additional economic growth for South Africa. Sure. But we need to be very careful that you know, growth uh, in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing if it funds uh, a conspicuous consumption, if it translates into unsustainable uh, or dangerous jobs, or if it's just extractive, uh, you know, ripping out resources and selling them into other markets. So we, whilst we may not be able to be uh, choosers, we can certainly be shapers and influencers over the type of capital that we attract and the type of foreign investor that we bring into uh, into the South African economy. I think that will be an important influencer on the ultimate outcome. Uh, Dr. Adrian Saville, thank you. He is a professor at Gibbs. He also runs Canon Asset Managers. Big five reasons South Africa needs foreign direct investment. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station.
Welcome to The Money Show. It is 26 minutes to 8 o'clock this evening. The new chief executive, okay, how long can somebody, it's like how long do you say Happy New Year to people for? I've got like a, a cutoff of New Year's Day and then after that you don't do it anymore. But Basani Maluleke is still the new chief executive at African Bank. How long have you been there? 18 days. 18 days. Yeah, Still you're brand new. new. You're squeaky clean. Uh, <laughs> brand new. You've got 100 days of, of, of grace, if you like. But I met your sister today. Isn't she fabulous? She's fabulous. The Deputy Auditor General of the Republic of South Africa. Very accomplished. Your dad was a high court judge. Your late dad was a high court judge. Your other mm. sister is like it, it, very creative and in charge at Yellowwoods, the brand's consultancy. Right. What's it like being the underachiever of <laughs> <in> them? <laughs> <laughs> but what my sister it, what, tells me you told her that you asked her the same question. I did, I did. I've okay. got, I don't have any original jokes. But, no. um, but what an extraordinary high-performance family you've come from. We've had an extraordinary couple of years. I mean, uh, we, I don't think anybody ever planned for it to kind of turn out this way at all. And I think having lost my father in August last year, mm. sure, it was tough. Sure. Um, I suppose anybody who's lost a parent knows that it's just it's, it's the most unbelievable thing. But to then have... You know, two of us suddenly take on these amazing positions that we both worked so hard for. Um, it has just been such a, a gift, right? Something to distract ourselves from and to really help us to see my father in this light as this guy, or my parents, in fact, right? As this couple who really invested so heavily in us. Um, and to have grown up together and to support each other and to just kind of consistently push and compete with each other has it's been fabulous. Because your parents made you go and get jobs. I mean, they made you work as kids. They're, they're not child labor stuff, but encourage. Oh, no, it was child labor. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of jobs did you do? Um, Because my family owns a number of grocery shops um, and a number of. It was child labor. It was completely child labor. I mean, I started off packing shelves and packing plastic bags and gradually graduated to becoming a cashier and, you know. Um, you know, working with inventory. So that's just from, from a young age, we had to learn to be diligent and to just, um, you know, not have a vacation and work. My father's view was, look, you'll, you'll rest when you're dead. So um, get on with it. <laughs> it was tough. <laughs> Very. But, but, no, but, but, but tough, but good tough. I mean, the, one gets a sense of great deal of fondness in your family. I mean, the warmth um, in your family is strong. It's incredible how that is it's so true. We we love each other. We adore each other. We spend a lot of time together, um, and that is really credit to the fact that my mother my mother just was not interested in us fighting. I mean, I remember her when she noticed that my sister my sister and I weren't talking. She would literally like lock us in a room and be like, "Fix it, whatever it is. You're not walking out of here until you're friends again." You know. So we'd always known that we had to do it. And one of, one of the things that my father really was very very um, strict about later on in life because we all would have challenges. You know, you'd have a setback and you'd like um, be very disappointed and want to hide in your room or in your in your home for for days and end and he would force each of us to call whoever was having a hard time you know he'd be like have you called so-and-so you should really go and see this one you know i'm really worried about your sister oh no your brother's really having a hard time you should go go attend to that you know as a result we've learned to be responsible for each other um, and to be accountable for each other's success high levels of empathy can i suggest i would say so yeah Mm. yeah yeah um when did you grow up where where was home Home was to Shanguve in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so we left that in the 80s during all the trouble, mm-hmm. we'll call it that, um, and moved to Bedford View. Um, okay. So I was in Cape Town for a few years to do my, my studies, but mostly I've been in Joburg. Okay, so mostly in Joburg. Yeah, when I last saw you, I, I asked you the question, you know, the, the, wherever you see your name, if you Google Basani Maluleke, the first black woman to be chief executive of a South African bank. And that made you quite grumpy initially. Is it still, are you still feeling a bit edgy about I'm that? I'm a lot less grumpy. I'm a lot less grumpy. Um, 
um, I think I've gained a little bit of perspective, mostly because my sisters forced me to gain some perspective, <laughs> um, knocked some sense into me. Um, and I think their view was, look, you know, the reality is this is a really special moment for the country um, and it's given so many people so much hope. It's made people feel um, inspired. I mean, the, the messages I get uh, are just unbelievable. Uh, people are so excited. They're so inspired. They're so motivated. They, there's a sense that a transformation really is, is happening. There's a sense that things are possible. Um, and people haven't had that sense. Because you, know, you, you are, whether you like it or not, a role model. I mean, I think yeah. you like it, but I mean, it adds a, a, an additional burden of responsibility on doing the day job. It also makes me walk a little bit taller. Uh, which is nice, <laughs> that's good. So look, I've had to, to learn how to wear all of this, right? Mm. I didn't quite expect that it would be quite so big um, and that it would affect so many people. So I've had to learn to figure out how to okay with it i guess right mm. um and how to rise to the occasion um and to and to help i mean you know i get a lot of people saying ah oh, help me to figure out how to do what you did yeah. i don't have answers yet no and, and it takes time and experience and you've also I've almost got to figure out how it happened um a little bit. yeah because you you kind of you've done a bit of law you've done a bit of accounting neither of those you liked very much i don't think for it is true <laughs> Um, I mean, so was auditing something you just were allergic to? Oh, my God, I hated it. Um, um, I had, funny enough, I had a bursary from KPMG when I went to UCT. And I audited uh, BMW in my VAC work um, environment. And I just realized that I would die if I had to do this for the rest of my life. So I negotiated with my father to do law. Um, and then on, studying my, on starting my articles at, um, at Edward Nathan, I realized that I would die if I could do this first in my life. <laughs> um, and then I went into corporate finance and had an absolute blast. Um, it was so much fun. But then I realized I didn't want to become an investment banker for the rest of my life. It just didn't seem... It was beautiful, right? You kind of yeah. go you're in plush offices, you get wonderful bonuses, um, you don't want some champagne when things go well. Um, and I was a member of the top performing corporate finance team in the country. So we did great deals, saw wonderful structures, learned an enormous amount, you know, worked crazy hours. It was just a phenomenal time for me to grow. And I had amazing mentors. Um, all the guys, um, and it's funny enough, it is all men. Um, who wait, 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 that's also unusual. You are unusual in the investment banking world. There are lots of women who are investment bankers, but there are far more men in yeah. that industry. It's a far more testosterone-driven sort of environment. And that's the thing, I guess. Maybe I have a lot more testosterone than um, than I should. Um, but I think it's it's also it's people who love a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and want to figure out how to solve the next problem. And I think I also have that mindset. And I think when you put people like that in a room together and or in a building together and you kind of say play, um, I think it just drives a wonderful innovation um, and, and great results, provided there's rules, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, don't break the rules. <laughs> you, you, you spent 12 years at, in the first RAND group. Um, that was home for a long time. Um, you ran private clients for, for, for a bit. I mean, that mm. was your most senior job there. And, and that's dealing with some, some pretty influential and powerful people in South African society. What were your experiences there? Um, met amazing clients. Uh, you know, the, there was always this, this comparison between FNB private clients and R&B, right? Mm-hmm. So they share the same building, they're on the same floor, we're separated by very little, right? It's pretty much the same organization. But the perception of the two brands are very different. And you'd get the view that the F&B private clients, clients are like, well, we're as wealthy as the other guys, but like, we, we like to be humble, we like to be perceived in a certain way, whereas the R&B guys were like, well, where's the champagne? You know, so it's a, so I, I learned that, right? That, you know, you don't have to, your wealth doesn't have to define you. I think that's mm. the that's the one thing, um, and of course you learn a lot more about inequality when you're in that environment, right? You you, you realize that um, just how expensive it is to be poor when you sit and you think about you know what you charge different people and how you think about 
um, the kind of products you make available to people. That's an important point that you make, and I want to explore it. How expensive it is to be poor. Elaborate. <laughs> it's a really this morning. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's so many facets to it. It's, it's a really important point. Absolutely. I mean, this morning you would have heard the stories about the, the bus strike. Yeah. And somebody said, when they were interviewing a bus passenger, and this guy was like, oh, no, it's going to cost me so much more money now that the bus doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And that's not something that we, well, I, I drive to work in the mornings. So I never have to really reflect on it. And I think it is all of these things that pile up. So even when you sit and you think about what do you, different banks charge you, you have a lot more negotiating room around what fee a bank is going to charge you when you are, when they have, you know, a billion round of your money for arguments. And, and they, and, and everybody in the banking industry wants you and therefore will be willing to do a deal. Absolutely. And I think <clears> that's the challenge, right? And, and, and so it kind of continues to build on that um, inequality, um, you know, just different distinction. It just gets, it keeps growing bigger and bigger because the wealthier you are, the less you pay for all these like really irritating fees and these very irritating costs. But the poorer you are, the more you pay. And as a result, you can't get out of this spiral. Um, as a result, I, I worry about it a lot as we think about diversifying our own bank, an African bank. Precisely, because your job precisely is to look after a client base that you want to grow and you want to keep, obviously. You don't want them graduating to other banks. You want to be able to yeah. get people from an early stage where they might come and take a personal loan or a micro loan from you. Yeah. By their very nature, the costs there are high. African Bank, in its previous iteration, accused of gouging and and and, and, and forcing people to take insurances mm -hmm. that they either did or didn't need and eventually um, African Bank was put into curatorship it's come out right. of curatorship it's been running again for a couple of years um, uh, Brian Riley um, ex of West Bank was was running it and you've taken over from him a huge responsibility on your shoulders in terms of running a successful profitable sustainable business but also ensuring that you don't rip off your clients. Absolutely. Um, you couldn't have said it better. And I think what's been a good thing about the last couple of years is the fact that there's been a lot more regulation. Like whoever says that is a banker, right? <laughs> um, I think the additional regulation around, you know, treating customer fa customers fairly, what interest rates banks can charge, um, insurance rates, et cetera, I really do think has resulted in banks creating a much better product um, in the personal lending space for customers. And I do think that, they, that, that that has improved. But I think a lot of what we're doing right now is to say, fine, personal loans are great, but the reality is you need to help people to build wealth. So the first thing we're doing is um, the launch of our transactional banking account, which we launched to our staff two weeks ago. It's called My World. Um, and it's great. It's the first time we've had a transactional account. Our staff has taken it up with great glee um, and excitement. And we're going to obviously refine that um, and launch it to the public in in future. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And that was the bar bizarre thing about this business called African Bank. It was a micro lender. It wasn't a bank. It wasn't a deposit taking institution. Um, the business model was that they the bank, when it needed money to lend to its customers, would go to the bond market and uh, would borrow money in the bond market and then lend it at considerably higher rates. To its customers, many of whom would manage to pay back over long periods of time, and the bank was extraordinarily profitable for a long period of time. But then the wheels did come off, and it got itself into trouble. And now, Basani Maluleke, the chief executive at African Bank, 18 days in to the top job, um, is uh, telling us about her life story, where she's come from, what uh, what has shaped her values, what keeps her awake at night. If you've got any questions for her, if you're a client of African Bank, have you noticed a difference in 18 days? It may be too soon. Uh, but three one seven zero. Two three one five six seven, or you can give us a call. It's quarter to eight. The Money Show, shape shift.
Shifters. Basani Maloleke, Chief Executive at African Bank. My producer, Tikiso, cares about this sort of stuff. He says, when are you going to list it on the JC? What is the timeline? Answer his questions. <laughs> Um, so we definitely have um, aspirations of listing. However, we also appreciate that given where the business is right now, we definitely need to do a lot more rehabilitation around um, you know, refinancing ourselves, getting our cost of funding to a level where we can be more profitable and gaining confidence back in the public and showing that our strategy is taking hold. So I think we have a few more years still. Um, to get that traction, and thereafter we definitely will list, and I hope he will invest. Um, African Bank Investments Limited. You see, I dodged that. African Bank Investments <laughs> Limited um, is now Phoenix, mm. um, and and that is what they used to call the bad bank. And That's this right. is the Phoenix rising. You are African Bank, the retail, the one we see on the on in the malls and on 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 the streets. Yeah. You are the bank, right? Um, and that is the part that you will consider listing in the next couple of years. When you look at the burden of at, at the, the social divides in South Africa, the economic divides, the, the expectation gap in South Africa. Mm. Um, how does an African bank of the future address that under your leadership? Not alone. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, I guess part of it is about giving people access to mm. products at an affordable price that enable them to do the things that they want to do. So a lot of what what banks talk about when they talk about transactional pricing, not transactional pricing, but transactional banking, is mm. that it's too expensive. Yep. Um, I mean, to give you an example, I, I once so I've been paying my helper through um, e-wallet um, for a long time. And in December, I was like, oh, I want to pay you a sizable amount of money. I'm going to pay it into your bank account. And she she just flipped. She freaked out. She's like, it's going to be so expensive. There's no way I can afford it. Um, and she just like point blank refused. And I think it is that Wise sense woman. that... <laughs> well, given the bank that she was dealing with, Bruce, you can understand. <laughs> so I think the key is that there Ooh. is this <laughs> there is this idea in the market um, that, you know, bank charges are exorbitant and it's difficult to understand them. And I think a lot of this has to be about how do we make the char- the fees more transparent so people understand them, but also how do you make sure that we charge people for things that they actually get value for? And I'm going to now use a swear word. Well, there's a swear word in your world. Um, I'm not, uh, most people know Capitec. Um, and, and, and they created the model. They, they, they turned the banking sector on its head. They really challenged the established banks. The established banks tried to chase them down the micro-lending hole and got burned really badly. Mm. Uh, you'll remember that from five or six years ago. Um, but they created the retail banking model that you're seeking to create now how are you going to differentiate in a meaningful way so people don't see you as a mini me to capitec yeah i mean i suppose for a long time um or for some time it will be seen as exactly that right because we are the young challenger and i think you've a lot been of around we, longer though you've been uh, as african bank it's we have and had it, a presence longer than capitex but you've been set back we have been set two back. decades yeah and in, in a lot of ways where we feel like we're starting starting all over again and i think what is wonderful about the position that the the position that we're in is that we can properly digitize the bank, right? We don't have the legacy systems. We don't have the cost base that we have to defend or the revenue streams that have been created um, through the or through the years by the other banks. And I think that's the value of being able to digitize, right? You can do things almost from scratch. And that's what we're doing right now. It's a huge part of our strategy. And that's what we're investing in. And, and I think what's going to differentiate us from the other players, for the most part, is going to be the banking experience itself. It's, it's going to be seamless. It's going to be entirely different. We are building it in a way that, you know, speaks to what customers want, right? So instead of kind of, and, and I think too often banks could develop products and expect people to buy them. And I think for the most part, customers are now dictating more and more what they want. And we are building our bank in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, with the ability to be able to 
better know what customers want so we can deliver on those products and the experience. And you're launching this and coming to market at a time where new rivals are coming to the market too. So, yeah. I mean, I almost want to call you a new bank because you are. Um, in the, I would in, like in, that. In terms, of, in terms of the model, I mean, it, it's a rethink of an old model. It's, a, it's fundamentally yeah. unrecognizable um, from a business model per perspective. But there's Discovery, and I get that they play in a different market segment. There's Time Bank, and I'm not sure where they're going to play exactly. And then you've got your old boss. <laughs> from whom uh, you learned some tricks, and he learned, would have learned some tricks from you, Michael Jordan, um, mm -hmm. and, and Bank Zero. All, I'm guessing, looking to do very similar things. Yeah. Low cost of entry, lots of digital technology, lots of ease of use, lots of making yourselves loved by the customer, yeah. all of those sorts of things. It's a lovely problem to have yeah. because you've, in a, you've got some really good, um, I suppose, colleagues in the fight against the old, more established big guys. Yeah. And I think what's really cool though, right, is the fact that there's all this competition. So we're going to have to figure out how to be as innovative and more innovative and create more value. But I think what's really great for us is that we have a very unique set of assets um, and we're going to make sure that we leverage those assets to be to be successful and to be competitive. And I think amongst those assets, for example, is the fact that we do have a very loyal customer base. Um, and there are people who've been looking for us to launch this account. And I think we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question of being able to capitalize um, on that as, as we grow. And in addition to that, I mean, we've recently just launched the ability for people to, to apply for a loan fully online in a digital platform. And I feel that we are well above of the field and being able so to So you can do all of the FICA stuff all of the documents and stuff i mean could i literally if, if if i wanted to go and open up an african bank account take my phone now scan the documents take photographs of the documents that you need my id proof of address yep. um upload that to uh, uh, to a cloud somewhere yep. and and get get the necessary it approvals. is so slick it is so cool it is so much fun to do you do the same thing when you open an investment account i've, with I've never well. i've never thought of opening up a bank account as fun but then we all get our kicks in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> you will love it. You can upload your own picture so you can look at yourself when you bank. It's wonderful. Awesome. Well, <laughs> some people would enjoy that more than others. It is um, true. Well, how, what, are, what are your goals as the chief executive of Africa Bank? I know you're only 18 days into the job, but what, 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 are you, what, are you, what measures are you setting yourself to see whether or not you've, you've achieved your, your big picture goal? You know, there's a lot of talk about needing a black bank. You know, it's still this idea that's flirting in the air. And I'm not entirely sure what people mean when they say that. And I'm hoping over time to better understand it. But I think there's absolutely an opportunity to create a bank that speaks to the needs of the majority of black people in South Africa. And I'm not entirely sure that we have done that historically. Um, and I think what I would like to leave as my legacy is a bank that really is a bank of the people and um, that really does deliver on what the people need. I mean, if you think about how often banks talk about stock files and how we need to make sure that we're tapping into this, all this money running around in townships and in, 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 in informal communities, how do we get at that? Sure, let's get at it. But then how do we then help those people to move out of poverty and to yeah. do cool things with that? And I think uh, it's, we must be able to be that bank that is perceived as being able to help people to build wealth who haven't had the chance to do so before. The idea of financial inclusion and when microlend is, in, is included in financial inclusion, you go, hold on a second, but there are very few things more exclusionary sometimes than high interest rates. At, but at the same time, there's nothing more exclusionary than not having They're the having funding no access. To, to pay for your education, uh, to pay for your children's education, to build that house, to buy that fridge, you know. So I think there's definitely a role for it. But the question, the key must be to ensure that you don't end up exploiting 
people to the extent that they're completely out of the market altogether yeah. because they've reached the end of their affordability. Mohammed Yunus's career in, in Bangladesh didn't end well, but he created a fundamentally different way of looking at yeah. micro-lending. And this was a guy who would lend money to women, short-term, high interest rates, but he believed that women would start businesses and use the capital to improve themselves. And he was proven largely right, yeah. I suspect. I mean, we, we look yeah. to something like that. Um, I suppose I have looked at that model, the Grameen model, and I, I do think it's very good. Um, and it's funny, when I got to the bank, one of the questions I asked was, do you find that there's more women than men who lend money from us? Um, and I think <laughs> there is slightly more women, but and, and their performance is, is not materially different or, or better in terms of, of paying back. But I do think we must find new and different models. Uh, but I think the key is, no matter what happens, though, we must be, we must find a way to measure that we actually are improving people's lives as opposed to just purely providing one more product. Because I think if we don't do that, we will quickly become irrelevant. Yeah, and, and that's your, your struggle is for relevance in, in uh, a quite competitive market. I won't say the banking sector is competitive, but it's going to become increasingly competitive and you're going to have to fight for that space. I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think it's going to have to be around how we find the niche, you know, and, and how we... Um, not ex- well, exploit the niche and how we grow that niche. And I think we can do that. I do think we, we, we currently speak to a very specific market. I'd like us to speak to a, an even broader market. But I think that has to be part of the growth strategy um, and us being able to prove that we can deliver on the strategy that we have set for ourselves. What do you do for fun? I speak to you. I mean, this is amazing. Well, I'm, I'm sure um, this is... Okay, but once <laughs> this is over... Um, what, 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 in terms of balance, because you're clearly very, very focused and very obsessed It's early days at the bank. I mean, do you, do you believe in things like balance when it comes to work? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, I love to read. I, I, I love it a lot. It makes me very happy. Um, I love to spend time with my family. You mentioned them earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, they... What are you, what are you reading? You know, Bruce, it's funny. I just finished a book, um, uh, Multipliers, and I read it because, you know, you must read a, a good financial book or a good management book from time to time, so I did that. But I'm actually thinking of reading Homodeus, and I'd meant to read that in December. I didn't get around to it, and that's the book about, it's a futuristic book. Um, what would the future look like if, if, if various things happen? So I'm quite excited about getting started with that. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole lot of articles I need to get to around AI and machine learning um, as, as per your earlier interviews. There's so going to be no balance at all. Going. That's my forecast. <laughs> We must leave it there, and I thank you so much for coming in. The Chief Executive, 18 days at African Bank. Um, lots of positive comments coming through on the SMS line and on my Twitter feed this evening. Basani Maluleke looking to change perceptions and uh, the facts around African Bank. I'm looking forward to seeing whether my world product is officially launched and whether or not it does differentiate. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. That's it from The Money Show. What a good show we had this evening. Big one tomorrow, Bonang Mohale and Tlantla Nene, chief executives of Clicks and Pick and Pay, and whoever else we can wedge into the show tomorrow. We're looking forward to that already. Thanks very much for listening. Good night.